Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Sasha Dench and Emma White co-founded Conservation Without Borders in 2019, an organisation which aims to connect individuals, communities, businesses and governments with conservation and climate action. Described by Sir David Attenborough as marvellously imaginative and adventurous, the expedition, titled The Flight of the Osprey, took place in 2022. Today, we'll be talking to Sasha about the expedition, which took her and her team from Scotland to West Africa, and we will highlight the challenges ospreys face as they migrate. Sasha can testify to the impacts of climate change in particular, as she's witnessed them firsthand on expedition across two continents. And she's here today to tell us the story of a spectacular wild bird under threat. Sasha, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. For anyone who isn't an ornithologist, could you describe the osprey? The osprey is a fabulous large bird of prey. Um, It does an incredible migration from Europe all the way down into Africa, breeding in Europe and uh, spending the winters down in, in Africa, West Africa. It is largely white on the underside, various shades of brown on the on the, the rear of its wings, um, but it has a really noticeable dark brown stripe that goes all the way from its bill across its bright yellow eye and to the back of its head. So it's really identifiable um, from other birds of prey that have brown colouring. It's also got incredibly strong uh, talons, two sharp claws on the, the front um, and two on the back, which it uses to grab a hold of fish, which is its sole diet. And does that make it a predator? It is a predator, yes. It eats only fish. Occasionally it takes other things, but that seems to partly be by accident. And what family of birds is it in? It's a large raptor, a bird of prey but unusual amongst raptors in that it focuses pretty much solely on fish. And why this bird and why now for Conservation Without Borders? As the ambassador for the United Nations Convention on Migratory Species, my role is to look at birds around the world that are in trouble. And if you look at the whole world, the the world is broken up from a bird's eye view into a series of flyways. So there's eight or nine, depending on how you want to count them. And they pretty much break up the whole globe into a series of like orange segments. The UK sits at a point in the middle of one of the flyways. And the flyway goes all the way from the Russian Arctic and uh, Greenland and Iceland all the way down into Africa. And so birds migrate between them. And the UK has a really important role being in the big, in the middle of that and having a very temperate uh, climate. So some birds will come and spend the winter in the UK and some birds um, will be spending their, their summers here. So it has a really important role right in the beginning. On a previous expedition, I looked at the northern part of the flyway we're on, following the Buick swans from the Russian Arctic to the UK. And now I wanted to have a look at the rest of the flyway down south. And I looked at all the different birds along the flyway, and many of those are under threat. Um, but particularly chose the osprey because it's a fabulous indicator species. Its position in the ecosystem is really important because it relies on water, freshwater and uh, coastal waters for feeding as it eats only fish, but it will eat freshwater fish and marine fish. 
but it also needs healthy forests because it perches on trees. And the wetlands that it's using all along the flyway, both the coastal wetlands and the inland wetlands, are the same wetlands that most of the other migratory birds are using. And those wetlands we know are under serious threat. So if we need a bird that not only is reasonably easy to follow, some of those birds that are migrating are small brown birds. If we want a bird that's really easy to follow, the uh, osprey is an incredible one because not only can we identify it easily in flight, they tend to fly on their own, but they're also quite identifiable. Members of the public and conservationists and photographers along the flyway we're also going to be able to help identify them. Um, and the other thing I like about the osprey is that it has a positive story. So the osprey in the past was persecuted uh, almost to extinction in this country, and we've lost most of the habitat um, that it's using. So there are sort of between two and 300 pairs at the moment, but there should be 10 times that number. But in the past, so starting in the 1800s, the birds were persecuted almost to extinction but they have in recent decades been starting to make a comeback. So from being as good as or functionally extinct in this country, we now have the, these two to 300 uh, pairs. And that is because people decided to act. People decided to do something about it. We stopped the practice of egg collecting. We have various people across the country have been protecting nest areas. They've also been creating artificial nests. The ospreys like big old trees where the tops are a bit broken off um, that makes the ideal platform for them to nest on they're high um, but also open enough for them to be able to um, see out lots of that habitat has gone but we can actually learn now how to re uh, recreate that nest platform and people have done it in suitable habitats uh, all around the country and also across Europe, there's been a collaboration where there have been significant numbers of ospreys, ospreys. People have been sharing them. So they've been reintroduced into different parts of the world. So we have got a really positive story of what we can do to help a species if we really try. But they still need a lot of help. And the area with the ospreys where they really need help is the return survival of the juvenile. So when they leave a nest in Scotland, for example, all of the birds migrate on their own. They won't migrate with their parents, so they figure it out for themselves. So when the juveniles leave one year, they fly all the way down south. They head for sub-Saharan Africa, so they go across the Sahara Desert looking for the green areas down south. They normally don't return back that year. They spend an entire year, nearly two years, below the Sahara, and then they will come back as about a two-year-old bird. And, and what is their survival rate? Somewhere between 60 and 70% of the birds that leave the UK will never return. And that's what we really need to understand. Why do so many die on that migration? And is there anything we can do to stop that or to improve that? So we've listed persecution so far and wetlands being under threat. Um, what are the other main dangers to the osprey? One that we're finding particularly an issue for the juveniles, and it's a sad discovery, what we've found is that when the, the birds set off on migration, the adult birds already know the migration route. So they tend to do a very direct route. They know where they're going to. But the juvenile birds each time have to learn for themselves. They partly have an inbuilt sense of where they need to migrate to. And because there's been translocations of birds, 
Uh, most of the birds in the UK have either found their way from a Swedish population or they've been actively translocated from Scandinavia. So the juvenile birds from the UK still believe in their head that they have come from a place much further to the west. So when they set off on migration, the juvenile birds are much more likely to take a route that takes them to the west and they'll end up on the tip of Cornwall then trying to find their way across to France and Spain whereas the adult birds will have learned that they can they can take a route much further to the east where they have only a very short crossing of the channel and they're always overland. Um, there were three juvenile birds that we tracked this year. One of them ended up getting blown off course off the tip of Cornwall, uh, was blown off but managed to find his way to Ireland, the tip of Ireland, clearly going in the wrong direction. Then he tried again to take off and was, uh, was lost out to sea. The other two juvenile birds both also took um, a route that was far too far to the west and got blown out, but they ended up in a weather system where the winds basically blew them back towards shore again. One of the birds eventually found, after uh, more than 24 hours, found its way to a spot on the coast of Portugal, which was incredible seeing how that wind brought him back there. Another one didn't make it that far, but actually managed to uh, find a ship. And we found that he hitched a ride on a couple of ships before he ended up somewhere near the coast of Spain and jumped ship to find land there. So um, you can see that as a juvenile bird, there are all sorts of challenges. You know, they are a, a smart bird. They're clearly trying to find ways of adapting but yeah the the fact that they've had an inbuilt memory from a different place but also this is one area where climate change is exacerbating the other threats that exist there so while that is a threat that would exist the fact that there are now stronger winds and more turbulent conditions for the juveniles trying to find their way um, is potentially making this this threat to them even worse. Another thing that we can't ignore is uh, power lines and power infrastructure. While we absolutely need lots more renewable energy sources, we unfortunately have found that the great places to build wind turbines, and when you build wind turbines, you also need to build power lines to take the power they generate to the grid. Those sites with strong winds are also sites that migratory birds like the osprey like to use, where there are strong winds and strong updrafts. So potential for yeah, collision with power lines and electrocution, particularly if they perch on the top of power lines and they're not insulated, is another really serious uh, threat to birds all along the flyway. But thankfully, there are solutions for that. So we've got a long way to go. But that is one thing we can do something about. There are ways that engineers can design the line so that they're more visible for big birds and also the pylons so that their birds can't be electrocuted on them. So we look at issues on a couple of different levels where members of the public, for example, call in. Normally people do call in if there is a hotspot where lots of birds are crossing an area where there are power lines and there are several bird deaths. Quite often the public will uh, call in and then we'll work with a local environment organization doing our best best to give them a voice so the power company listen to them go out and make some modifications on the line you can hang various different types of things depending on the bird but there are things that hang off them there's swizzle there are balls you might have seen put online just make them more visible and on the pylons there are ways that you can insulate it so the bird can't be electrocuted so we'd work with a local ngo uh, or local groups to give them a voice getting local media attention for example but our main interest our main work is to step back and look at the bigger picture of that and realize that 
actually nobody wants that to be happening. Nobody wants birds to be dying on the power lines, but there exists information on how to build create both the lines and the power lines so that they don't kill birds, but also on where the most important highways are for birds, so where you probably shouldn't build power lines at all. How, why is it that that information isn't with the right people who are designing and then building the power lines? And we try and look at that system and try and fix that. So try and find a cure um, whilst we support local organisations to um, do the emergency work. So the osprey moves from the temperate uh, broadleaf biome of the UK um, across the Mediterranean, by the sounds of it, and then into North Africa over the desert towards, is it a grass and tree savanna destination? Or why do they choose that flyway? They're basically heading for warmer conditions where there is a lot of fish availability, also areas they can perch on, and limited disturbance from people. That's generally what they're looking for. So they must, they might be crossing over some areas of a grassland. They tend to be living on the coast or in mangrove forests, where we've seen most of them are in mangrove forests, some of them low, some of them really tall mangrove forests, either in, in estuarine areas along the coast, but also some inland. They can be you know, inland upriver systems. That's what they're heading for. So we followed a bird called 4K all the way to the coast of Guinea, where he regularly uses pretty much the same three trees in a big junction on a river, which is tidal. So at low tide, what you see mostly there are vast uh, mud banks um, where you find monkeys, curlew, all kinds of other fish, and the water gets very shallow at, the, at really low tides. He tends to head out towards the sea. But as the tide come in, it brings a whole new influx of fish, and there you'd be, you'd have water right up to the base of the mangroves and we tried to look for a site where we could get out of the boat but actually trying to move and maneuver yourself amongst the mangroves that are covered in oysters and crabs and things is almost impossible so you can imagine a site like that there's very little disturbance people don't go there apart from the odd fishermen and do they follow the same migratory path every year Yes, once they found a place, and for the juvenile birds, they have to find a place where they're not competing with other adult birds who are stronger and more efficient. If they find a site where they're comfortable, where they can find plenty of fish, they will tend to come back to that same spot every year and to make a fairly direct migration. On the return migration for the birds, the weather can be more challenging. They're more likely to have uh, strong headwinds and the conditions in the Sahara can be quite difficult. So you will find them if they have decent conditions, they will take the same route, but sometimes they get blown offshore, have to maybe go to ground in the Sahara and wait for storms to pass, etc. But yeah, once they've learned a route, they try and stick to it. And after their return migration, where do they nest when they return to the UK? Adult birds will return to the nests that they have used the previous year, and they will usually pair up with their the same partner. And the same partner will have spent uh, their winter potentially in a completely different part of, of West Africa or of Portugal, the juvenile birds need to come back and try and find a nest space. And as I said before, there aren't many places, there aren't many of the right sort of old trees, old growth forests with natural nat that naturally provide the right sort of nesting places. The male birds will try and find a nest within a pretty small space, a kilometre or several kilometres from the nest that they've left from. The female birds tend to be a bit more adventurous and they will be found uh, looking for a place further afield. 
So sometimes the birds will try and look for a nest where one of the partners might have died and there might be a, a gap. Otherwise, they'll be looking for a new nest. And that's where there are the real opportunities for us people around the country to put up artificial nests. So we have um, an example at Bolton Estate where the landowner there noticed a couple of ospreys flying overhead and thought that they would try and actually build an osprey platform and see what would happen. They visited various sites around the country where that had been done, found two spots on their property that they thought might be suitable. The next thing you know, the birds on migration were clearly scoping it out a bit and next thing you know, they'd landed and they'd started a family there. So that's they have now, in effect, started a population in Yorkshire. And that's the first time they've bred in Yorkshire in more than 100 years. So that's really exciting. Similar thing has been done in Devon, where a, um, a builder who was retiring decided that he would have a go as well at building a building an osprey nest. And they've also now got ospreys. Uh, they've bought, built nests in two places on um, various different people's land. Different people offered their land to, for him to build them on. And they've also now got ospreys uh, scoping. So, yeah, it's a very clearly a bird where you don't have to do very much, give it a bit more habitat, and they will start to repopulate. And the osprey needs that habitat because there's been a lot of ecological change um, due to climate change recently. How is this affecting the survival of the bird? Climate change is definitely affecting the birds. On the expedition, we identified... 38 different threats to the ospreys and the majority of those are being made worse by climate change. So the original loss of the osprey populations in the UK happened, yeah, started happening back in the 1800s when people built fish farms. If you build a fish farm, stock it with lots of fish, you will attract every osprey in the region and people didn't like the competition with an osprey. And so killed the ospreys that came to the fish farm. But in effect, that's a very easy way to basically destroy an entire population. So that is really, really sad. And then there was the trend in egg collecting, particularly when a bird becomes rare, the eggs become more and more uh, interesting and more valuable. So the rarer the bird got, the more people wanted to collect the eggs. Um, and then in that time, we also yeah removed a lot of the old growth uh, forest that would once have been the osprey's habitat. Also, we've lost a l large percentage of the wetlands over time. So in an effort to try and bring the birds back now, we can't do that without also uh, bringing back a lot of the habitat. And that's a really exciting area as well. The more trees and forests we grow, the better we can improve the quality of our river and freshwater and coastal systems using less fertilizer and chemicals, but also allowing less pollution to enter the water. That will also be helping to bring back the ospreys and also recreating a lot of the wetlands that we've lost. That will help the ospreys. Um, it'll also help us. And is there anything individuals can do, either vis-a-vis -vis, uh, behavioural change or something that perhaps we could do in our back gardens to help the osprey? There are various things that will all help. They will help locally, they will help people, but they will also help potentially along a flyway. One of those is we have become very comfortable with using pesticides in our back gardens. Those pesticides generally, whilst they might 
be aimed at a particular bug we don't want on a plant. Most of them are fairly broad and they will kill a lot more than we think. Many of them have also been tested for how long they will last in an air environment, but they haven't been tested for how long they might last in water. So some of them, for example, actually even the chemical used for pets to kill fleas and things, if the pet then jumps in the water, the um, chemical will last a long time and kill a lot more small insects in the water than we think. So Think very carefully about any use of pesticides in the garden and have your whole family think that. If there's anything you can do or potentially think of your garden as a place where you don't only grow plants, you also try and grow a whole zoo of um, small insects. The more variety of insects you have in the garden, the less likely any one of those insects is to get out of control. And so, yeah, try and encourage that if you can. Um, have some slightly wilder parts of your garden rather than having a lawn. If you can mow paths through, through a wilder lawn that would also help all sorts of things and if you're helping the insects it's many of those insects will end up in the food chain of the fish and fish populations uh, healthy fish populations is what will help an osprey so that's all really important anything you can do to reduce your level of electricity eating less meat that also is of huge value and i know many families are doing that now more plants and a bit less meat and plastic. If you look from a bird's eye view at this entire migration, you notice that in many countries, plastic is a real problem. We're not talking about a little bit of plastic on the side of the river. We're talking about some places where during a flood, the entire river is a river of plastic or where from the shore, vast amounts of plastic is washing in. And a lot of that is coming from us uh, in Western countries. So anything you can do to reduce your uh, dependence and use of plastic is also really important. Two more things I'd like to mention is, and it's how I got into conservation, is volunteering for local charities, doing things for the environment is really important. And also looking after your local area. So uh, plastic cleanups, for example, along riversides and in parks are really important and they make a difference. And not only that, you quite often are seen by other people and that is the kind of thing that might inspire them to head off and, and do the same. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the flight of the osprey. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.